You are listening to The Mallory Report, a live radio show that ventures into the mysteries of life, as well as the hot topics of the day, either political or business. Welcome everybody to this evening's Mal Report. I'm I'm so excited to have my guest my guest on the night, and I'm also for the couple two people for, that are watching on video, they're gonna notice that I'm like wildly uncomfortable because it's like 95 degrees in this room right now. I managed to put an AC in downstairs, but of course I'm upstairs in the room that faces the sun the majority of the day, and uh, I didn't come in here until about 8:30. And um, well, I wish I would have came in earlier and. I don't know, because I I, clo- I I don't want to say I nailed the window shut, but uh, pretty close so I could keep the sound out from outside. So, yeah. Anyways, all that fun. My guest, my guest tonight is uh, used to fun in the sun. And, uh, the psychic lawyer. You have all. I mean, you have so many uh, taglines. I don't even want to try to get into it. Mark Anthony, how are you doing tonight? <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I'm doing great, <laughs> and it's always. You know, I always love coming back on the Mallard Report, um, and and we were just talking. It's coming up on the tenth anniversary of your show, and that's how many years I've been coming on your show. As I say, you're probably the first guest that I. I mean, I, there were other ones before you, but you were kind of that breakthrough, and it kind of like the, I was really excited after that. And I remember that that was August, and it was probably just as hot then, because I remember I was like literally hanging out a window that night trying to interview you and not like have a heat stroke. So it, you bring out the heat. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, that sounds good. <laughs> and you know, that's kind of almost apropos for what we're going to talk about tonight, isn't it? Yeah, I was going to say, so you you want you have some gate of hell stuff, which is just, I find that fascinating, but what, what do you want to, where do you want to go with that? Well, one of the, um, I'm known as the psychic lawyer, but I'm also known as the psychic explorer because I've spent a, a good chunk of my life traveling to mystical spiritual sites around the world and i love to study archaeology and ancient mysteries and uh, explore supernatural phenomenon and in my research i came across how archaeologists uh, a couple years back i think it was around 2016 2017 in what is now turkey discovered the dreaded gate to hell itself That sounds like a place that you don't want to go. Yeah, and you're exactly right about that, except in the ancient world, it was kind of the place, the hot spot, no pun, well, pun intended, (laughs) to go. And let me set the the scene. The country of Turkey, um, it's in the eastern Mediterranean, and uh, 2,500 years ago, it was uh, pretty much Greek-speaking. Um, it didn't become Turkey until the Turks conquered it during the medieval era. But anyway, about 25, 2,600 years ago, uh, that was the classical era of ancient Greece, when people believed that the gods lived on Mount Olympus and, and that Zeus was the god of the sky and lightning and Poseidon was the god of the ocean and Hades was the god of the underworld. Now, the Romans uh, had the same religion pretty much as the Greeks, so uh, their god of the sky was Jupiter, the god of the sea was Neptune, and the god of the underworld was Pluto. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because Professor Francesco Diadria from Italy, he 
was obsessed with finding the reference uh, there were many references in in ancient greek and roman literature about the gate to hell and they called it the plutonium and what's fascinating is plutonium the element is the most lethal substance known to our science i mean it is the most toxic because it's you know immensely radioactive and the plutonium was supposedly a gate to the underworld kingdom of the god of death, the god of the underworld, the god of the afterlife, which was Pluto. And according to um, to Cicero, who's a, a Roman, to Plutarch, um, and all these other ancient writers, uh, Strabo, um, he who visited uh, the temple of the Plutonium in the first century B.C., said that, when you walk into it, it's a, it's a relatively small cave, but it's filled with a, a vapor so misty and dense that one can scarcely see the ground, and that any animal that passes inside meets instant death. And there was also accounts by Cicero, uh, the Roman statesman, he went there and he said that the priests of the god Pluto used to bring in bulls, and then they'd hear a thud, and then they'd have to pull the bull out dead. And the, apparently the, the, the priests at this temple would sell people birds so you could go up and throw birds into this temple and they'd immediately drop dead. <laughs> That's an interesting thought about killing a lot of birds. Yeah, it's, it's kind of macabre. I mean, you know, it's creepy. It's like, here, buy these birds and then throw it in there and it's, it's going to die. So what happened was Deandre and his team, they started excavating. And this area... Is in they is in the ancient city of Heropolis, which is right adjacent to the modern day Greek city of Pumacal, and there's these um, hot springs there that people have been going to for thousands of years to soak in the warm waters for their mineral properties and their healing powers, and you know not unlike where President Franklin Delano Roosevelt used to go in Georgia to warm springs. In fact, that's where he actually died, and so these mineral springs were reputed to have healing powers. So in this area, they also, uh, the Greeks also built temples to the other gods. There's, you know, temple to Apollo and temple to to uh, Diana and the various. So it kind of was like the the Disney World of of ancient Greece. You know, you went there to to worship various gods, but the big but the big draw was the plutonium and watching the priests bring in animals that would drop dead. And um, the what the Greeks said was that anyone who dared to enter the kingdom of Hades would be struck down by the hellhound, Cerberus. And Cerberus is this big, gnarly, three-headed dog that, that apparently his breath was so foul. Now, let's put him in modern-day terms. Anyone that's seen the first Harry Potter movie, remember Fluffy? Remember Fluffy, Jim? <laughs> yeah, it's been a while since I've seen the Harry Potter movies, but I do vaguely yeah, remember. Yeah, remember that. Fluffy? Well, Fluffy is basically a knockoff of Cerberus, a three-headed hellhound. And apparently the breath of Cerberus was so foul that it would strike down any human that would walk into it. Well, Deodre and his team, they're, they're researching this area, and they also found um, the tomb of St. Philip, who was one of the apostles who um, apostles of Jesus, and he went on his missions to try to convert people to Christianity. And unfortunately, he went to Heropolis and started telling all the people at this Disneyland of the Greek gods that, you know, you really need to stop doing that. So they immediately killed him, and then he's a martyr. So he's buried there. And then all of a sudden, 
they found this one cave, this arched cave. There was an arch built around it. They started excavating it, and they noticed there were dead birds around it. And then, like, what's going on here? Then they found a statue of Cerberus, the three-headed hellhound, right at the the uh, entrance of this cave. So now they're getting really excited, Jim. They're like, okay. And they noticed that whenever birds would fly into this cave, it would immediately they immediately drop dead. I, I'm excited too, to the point of trying to figure out why somebody would go in there. I mean, obviously people want to go in. I mean. But I'm sitting here go. I'm sitting here. I'm like having this debate with myself, Mark. Am I dumb enough to want to go in there? Right. Just well, because what uh, what Cicero and Plutarch said is they noticed that when they would bring the bulls in, they get these big bulls and they'd bring them in and then they'd collapse. They did it during uh, noontime, during the hottest time of the day. And they also noticed that it appeared that the priests were holding their breaths. And and, they, and and one of them wrote about how, um, let's see, he said that, yeah, it was, um, I think it was Plutarch. He said they could tell the, the pained, I could see, oh, Strabo. He said, I could see in their countenances a kind of suffocating attack. In other words, these guys are holding their breath and they bring um, the bulls in. The bulls would collapse. And uh, they also noticed that they would stand very, very erect. All right, let me cut to the chase. So the archaeologists are in this area. They're finding that things that go into this are dropping dead. So they bring in geologists, and they start studying this. Well, they know that Heropolis sits atop a volcanic vent, because this part of the world in the eastern Mediterranean is extremely geologically active. And what they discovered is that there is an intense amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now, carbon dioxide, you know, that's a greenhouse gas. That's what, you know, with people that are concerned about global warming, they said that there's too much carbon dioxide um, being put into our atmosphere. And normally, in, in, in normal levels, Jim, you and I are breathing in carbon dioxide all the time because normal carbon dioxide levels are 0.039%. Okay, so basically 0.039% of the air that we breathe is carbon dioxide. But when you start boosting carbon dioxide levels, if you breathe air that's 10% carbon dioxide, you're going to be dead in 30 minutes. Well, when they started testing the inside of this cave and they went deeper, they found out that the carbon dioxide levels reached as high as 91%. And if you breathe that in, it's instant death. So the Greeks knew that the air in this cave was lethal. And to scare people, scare the hell out of people going to hell, they said that if you walked in there, you'd be struck down by the foul breath of Cerberus. Now, they didn't understand carbon dioxide, but they certainly understood that the air there was poisonous. Now, why did the priests go there at the middle of the day? Well, when carbon dioxide gets heated up, it sinks down to the ground. It's denser and heavier. So while they, once again, while the ancient Greek priests and Roman priests didn't understand about carbon dioxide, they knew that if they went into this cave and they stood up straight, kind of held their breath, 
um, they weren't going to die. And cows and, and cattle and the other things that they brought in there, you know, their their uh, noses are much lower to the ground, so they'd be breathing in the toxic air. They would collapse, and boom. And then, you know, of course, they were charging people to see all of this, so it became a um, you know a big money maker. And um, to this day, to this day, the plutonium is still lethal. So I've got a follow-up question that bears a really, really silly question, but you have this great tourist site, or, well, tourist site being loose air quotes there, right? I guess Disney's a tourist site, too. Some people out there could compare the two, but we're not. I'm not going to go there. Just saying, for the record. That wasn't me that compared them. Other people can. Why would you, I mean, if you have this great quote-unquote religious site, why did it fall to being discovered by archaeologists and not kept current that's a very good question here's what happened although the apostle philip did try to convert people that was in the early part of the first century a.d eventually the roman empire became christian and when it became christian um the the roman empire emperors in the fourth century a.d um basically declared this area to be pagan and they bricked it up so, and then later on, uh, maybe a couple hundred years after that, there was an earthquake in the area. So essentially, when the, the Roman Empire became Christian, there was no more government funding for this religious site. They looked at it as such essentially devil worship, paganism, and so it got completely cut off that way. Although, people would still go there for the benefit of the, the warm springs, and then it became more associated with the martyr Saint Philip, who you know the Apostle Philip, who was uh, murdered there uh, because of his beliefs. So over time, it was bricked up. Then there was an earthquake, and then it sort of it passed from from reality to to legend, and then to myth. And you know, Jim, the really fascinating thing about this is. This shows that a lot of these ancient stories, ancient myths, may have had some type of logical basis. And that's exactly what happened here. I mean, once again, the Greeks didn't necessarily understand the different gases in the air that we breathe. But they knew that in certain areas there were noxious gases and gases which would affect people. And if you'll bear with me for a minute, I'll talk about another one right across from Turkey across the Aegean Sea to the mainland of what is now Greece. Yeah, go for it. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, the Oracle of Delphi, uh, my Greek friends keep correcting me and telling me it's pronounced Delphi, um, but I say Delphi, uh, was, was sacred to the god Apollo. And Apollo was the god of the sun, of archery, of music, but also of prophecy. And so the Oracle of Apollo, for over 1,700 years, we're talking 17 centuries, all the way up until um, the, the middle of the 4th century A.D., people would come to consult with the Oracle of Delphi to receive a prophecy, basically a psychic reading. And it Delphi was mainly populated by priestesses, uh, young women who had dedicated their lives to Apollo. 
and they would sit on this tripod, basically a big stool, over a geothermal vent, and they would go into this uh, trance-like state, and people would ask their questions, and they would receive the prophecy. Well, archaeologists have studied that area, and they found that Delphi as well is geologically active, except the ground there emits ethylene. Now, the ancient sources said that when they would approach the the oracle and they would ask the priestesses their questions and they'd go into this trance-like state and give answers, that the air smelled sweet. Well, ethylene has a sweet smell, and it's also a form of a hallucinogenic. And so people that breathe in ethylene go into this, you know, groovy baby state. And what's really fascinating, though, is that a lot of the prophecies, or many of them, uh, were were extremely accurate. My theory is that, yes, Apollo is the god of, of prophecy, but then, as now, there were people who were psychics and mediums, except the religions of the Greco-Roman world, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, they didn't you know, persecute psychics and mediums. Instead, they embraced them. And so that people that had these abilities would go there, and they probably received some type of training in, in how to, to work with spirits or to work with uh, the energy that gives you prophetic visions and, and messages. And, you know, of course, it was all um, enveloped in their religion of the day, uh, honoring the god Apollo. And one of my favorite stories, and, and we're talking not just common people, but the big shots of the ancient world. I mean, we're talking the likes of Julius Caesar, Cleopatra, Mark Antony, Octavian. We know that Nero was there, uh, the Roman Emperor Hadrian, Trajan. I mean, we're talking the big, the big names of the ancient world all went to consult with the Oracle of Delphi. And around 525 BC, the Persians were uh, the Iranians, uh, they called them Persians, uh, Persian, Iran are the same thing. The Persian Empire had invaded uh, this region. And the wealthiest king in the world, his name was Croesus. And Croesus was king of Lydia. And Lydia is basically modern Turkey. And he was very concerned about the Persians. So he went and he consulted at, with the Oracle of Delphi. And the oracle said, if you attack the Persians, you will destroy a mighty empire. Well, Croesus took that to mean, well, I better attack these Persians. So he gathered up his allies, and that included the Egyptians and the Phoenicians and some Babylonians. And he led this great army against the Persians, and they absolutely destroyed Croesus's army. The Persians wiped the ground with him. Um, some accounts say they executed him, others say they took him prisoner. But the kingdom of Lydia was defeated and completely absorbed by the Persian Empire. Let's look at the prophecy. If you attack the Persians, you will destroy a mighty empire. He did. His own. <laughs> oh, man, that's that's good. Okay, so... I told you I have my own notes, right? And then I've told you the chat room would probably come up with their own conversation they want to have. So we're going to kind of stroll through history in the next few questions I've got here for you. What do you think about the Knights Templar? Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> Quite a bit. Um, I think the Knights Templar are, are an extremely fascinating um, group. They, okay, the reason they're called the Knights Templar, the Crusades 
were a series of religious wars that Europeans waged in the Middle East in the attempt to recapture Jerusalem and pretty much what is now Israel, uh, which was referred to as the Holy Land. I mean, I could go into extensive history about that, and I don't want to bore people, but um, the reason they're called the Knights Templar, they were a religious military unit. They're like the special forces of the crusading armies, but they're also intellectuals. And they also realized that war is expensive, and you've got to be able to finance it. So the Templars set up a banking system, which essentially stretched from England all the way to Jerusalem. And so if you would deposit your gold, let's say you were in Paris, and you took some gold and you deposited it in a Templar bank, they would give you a certificate that you could redeem at any Templar bank, you know, anywhere in the Mediterranean world, all the way to the Middle East for your money. And they charged interest to do this. So in a sense, Jim, they set up the first international banking system. The reason that they're called the Knights Templar is because in the First Crusade, in the year 1099, the First Crusade captured the city of Jerusalem in the name of Christ, and they immediately proceeded to slaughter over 20,000 people, Muslims, Jews, Christians that looked like Arabs, I mean, anybody uh, and everybody, it was an absolute bloodbath. You know, we wonder why um, using the word crusader is a no-no in politics, it's because from a Muslim perspective, that's a pretty horrible thing. And so the Crusaders sacked and looted Jerusalem in the name of Christ and killed tens of thousands of people. And the Knights Templar seized the Temple Mound. Now, the Temple Mound is believed to have been the site of of the Temple of Solomon. In fact, the Wailing Wall, perhaps the most sacred or the most sacred site in Judaism, uh, where we you know, we see many Jewish people making the pilgrimage, um, is is one of the remaining walls of the Great Temple of Solomon, which is described in in history and in the Old Testament. And it is rumored that within the excavation that the knights conducted of the Temple Mound, that they actually located the Holy Grail, supposedly the the cup Christ used, Jesus used at the Last Supper. There's other rumors that said that they also may have located the Lost Ark, but of course we all know that Harrison Ford actually found it, so I'm not so sure we can believe that. Ergo, they're called the Knights Templar because of the Temple Mound. Now, a whole mystique grew up around them because here they are charging interest on money. Um, they're supposedly in possession of the most sacred relic in Christianity, the, the Holy Grail. But over time, the Crusades were a military failure. And so by the 1300s, um, while the, the Holy Land was you know, reconquered by the Turks, the Knights Templar were still running this big banking business and what happened was uh, Philippe the Fair, um, uh, I think it was Philippe the Fourth of France, and um, I believe it was Pope. Uh, I think it was Pope Innocent. Um, no, Pope Clement. Pope Clement. Basically, they conspired because they couldn't pay back Templar loans because kings and popes were taking out money and they couldn't pay it back. So the Knights Templar, there was a joint 
um, coordinated arrest in France where they were charged with heresy, usury, charging interest, sodomy, devil worship, uh, witchcraft. Um, they, they every every crime in the book, and they were all arrested on Friday, October thirteenth, in the year thirteen seventeen. And it is believed, Jim, that's why Friday the 13th is considered an unlucky day because that's the day that the Knights Templar were arrested and charged with all these crimes, saying that they were involved in witchcraft, homosexuality, um, black magic, um, devil worship, um, and, and, of course, usury, charging charging uh, interest. They tortured, the, the French king tortured the Knights Templar mercilessly um and you know we're talking this is the middle ages they're using the rack thumb screws um shoving hot pokers where the sun doesn't shine they tortured these poor men and of course you know who wouldn't confess to everything and the grand master of the knights templar jacques de molay was burned at the stake and he asked to be burned at the stake to where he could see notre dame cathedral in paris and as the flames were engulfing him, he cried out, I will see the Pope and the King before God. Hmm. Well, within <laughs> a couple months, Pope Clement dropped dead of a heart attack. And a little bit after that, Philippe, the King of France, was killed in a hunting accident. And so the rumor started that Jacques de Molay indeed was in league with Satan and had used his satanic powers to strike down the king of France and the Pope. Then there was other people saying, well, maybe he was a channel for the vengeance of God. So anyway, I mean, either way, I mean, these juicy rumors started spreading and it all emanated back to Friday the 13th. So anyway, that's the tip of the iceberg of, of some of the tales about the Knights Templar. So I, I've got uh, this is working out well because I, I have these questions that I string them together out of the chat room, even though they didn't come in this order. So okay, so my next favorite thing to talk about, well, Mark, I say my next favorite thing to talk about, and I don't nearly talk about it enough around here. It's Oak Island, which translates from the Templar because that's where the treasure is supposed to be buried, right? And is the what? The Oak Island. Spell that for me. Oak Island, the um, island. Oh, up to, Oak Island. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I but, wasn't sure what you were saying. I was like, Oak Island. I'm like, what's Oak Island? Oak Island. But okay, by the way, yeah. for the record, that is shaped like a duck. Just because I just have to throw that out there. I, I tell everybody when I talk to them about that. And I, I think I am the key to unsolving this mystery. But that's here and there. So what do you think the Templars, um, uh, gold and silver are there? Or are we just making a good TV show? Well, let's get back to... The Knights Templar being burned at the stake and tortured in France, a lot of them escaped. And they escaped to Scotland. Now, the Knights Templar were sharp, uh, were, they were the sharpest tacks in the box. And a lot of them were very skilled in the art of construction, and they were uh, masons. And they went to Scotland and were employed by the Scottish king. And this is where it is believed that the Freemasons started. And the Freemasons are, to this day, a very secretive organization. And supposedly, they came over to the New World. <clears throat> Not supposedly, they have, because Freemasons are here. 
and like a, a third of the the men who signed the uh, the um, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were Freemasons. I believe that George Washington was. I think Thomas Jefferson was. Benjamin Franklin, and um, a huge percentage of U.S. presidents have have all been uh, Freemasons. And so it is believed that um, some of the treasure and uh, certainly many of the Knights Templar not only escaped to Scotland but that they also made their way to the New World, which brings in Oak Island. So it is entirely possible. I mean, you know, maybe it's just a myth, maybe it's a legend, but it certainly makes for good discussion on the Mallard Report, doesn't it? <laughs> it sure does. So maybe it was just a, a stop on the way, and we sailed down the Florida. Now, Mark, we've talked for years, and we've talked about all sorts of things, but I, I don't. We haven't talked about this yet, and this is going to be in your wheelhouse. And I'm just going to throw it to you. What the hell is going on with Florida man? I see all these stories all the time about Florida man playing with gators, and I. What is going on down there, Mark? Well, Florida is okay. Um, I think we're either the fourth or possibly the third most populous state now. Um, you know, for a lot of people, it's very desirable to live here because of the warm weather. You never have to deal with snow, just, you know, hurricanes. Um, and you always hear about, you know, the alligators and all that. But you also have to realize that Florida was was pretty remote. That's why Disney bought up all the land that they did. That's why the Space Center uh, was put here uh, on the east coast of Florida um, but then, you know, the tourists discovered it in the 1950s and um, started flocking here. So, you know, I, I've grown up, uh, grown up in Florida, and I've had more than my fair share of encounters with sharks and, and uh, you know, all types of poisonous snakes and alligators. I mean, I've, I've definitely come in, come in contact with a lot of the, the, the creatures here. The problem is we've deforested Florida to the point where these creatures habitat, they have nowhere to go. Like, you know, they, I mean, there's bears, you know, wandering around neighborhoods in Florida. I mean, where I live, I live on the Barrier Island. There's some coyotes living in a, a city park uh, two miles from where I live. And it's because these animals have nowhere to go. Oh, you know, they go, oh, my God, there's bears in the neighborhood. Well, bears are bears, okay? They smell garbage. They're going to go foraging in it. And people encroach into these wetlands and they want to build houses on these lakes because they look so nice and it's pretty. Well, guess what? Lakes in Florida are loaded with alligators. And uh, alligators, uh, they survived the, uh, what the asteroid hit that wiped out the dinosaurs. You know, they're not very intelligent creatures, but they certainly have a knack for survival. So that's what the problem is. It's coming down to, you know, humanity encroaching upon the habitat of these creatures. You know, I'm no big fan of alligators, but are they evil or are they just alligators? <laughs> well, let's hope they're not evil. So you mentioned the, the Space Coast. That kind of leads me to a question I was going to ask, but we're kind of there since we're talking about space. I'm sure you have, you, I'm sure you have uh, paid attention to all the stuff about the UFOs and the disclosures and the government. And, of course, you're aware of, you know, we've had these conversations about what the government would tell us and what we should believe from the government, but it seems like the climate has kind of changed on all that. Do you think they're ever going to tell us everything, though? No, because I think the government, um, you know, yeah, I grew up thinking truth, justice, and the American way, and I think in the last year with, with um, 
Well, really, I mean, if you study civil rights and, you know, I always try to avoid discussing politics because no matter what you say, you're going to ruffle somebody's feathers. But I think it's pretty clear that there are some deep, deep problems with uh, racism in this country. And um, the government has not always been very forthcoming or protective of large segments of the population. And I believe that that the, the wheels of change have been set in motion on that. And, you know, it's rather auspicious today is the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd. So, you know, talking about this is, is certainly relevant. But now switching over to UFOs, um, I've interviewed uh, on my shows and I've, I've spoken with several people in MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. I've also talked to and um, actually friends with the former head of the United States military's UFO program. He's now in his 80s, a fantastic guy, um, Colonel Dr. John Alexander. I highly recommend that, you know anyone looking him up and getting uh, his books um, because he said that UFOs are real. We are being visited by alien worlds. Uh, from the various sources I've talked to, um, there's at least five different species visiting Earth. So it's not just like little green men or the greys or whatever. There's more than one type of alien intelligence visiting earth now i can only imagine what this might must sound like to people who don't believe it but if you're skeptical go take a look at the stars at night according to nasa in our milky way galaxy alone there are 100 billion stars that could have an earth-like planet around them now, there's more than 100 billion stars in our Milky Way, but there's estimated at least 100 billion that could have planets orbiting them capable of, of sustaining life as we know it. I think the odds are in the f favor of the aliens, and I realize that a lot of religious people think that Earth is the only, you know, place in the universe where, where God put uh, life. And if you want to believe that, that's fine. But, you know, I, I tend to, to defer to science. And also, we're not the only galaxy. We're one of billions of galaxies. So a solar system is like where we are. There's a star, our sun, and there's planets orbiting it. That's the solar system. And a galaxy is a collection of solar systems. And all of those solar systems are orbiting, essentially, the um, center point of a galaxy. So it appears that from the subatomic to the cosmic, you have a nucleus with something orbiting it. Okay, I mean, you go from, from uh, uh, atoms to, to molecules to our own planet to our own solar system to our own galaxy. So the idea that we are alone in the universe, or dare I say, the multiverses, I think is is naive, juvenile, and just downright ignorant. I agree. So how, how do... Okay. There's no smooth... I've been doing good with smooth transitions throughout the show, but this one's kind of a, a dicey one, so we're just going to kind of him and haw through it. Let's talk about the rest of 2021 for a minute because we've kind of talked about this disclosure bit that I, I believe, I agree, that it's just kind of, it's the carrot kind of getting dangled again, dropping down a little bit more so you can kind of see it and then it'll be gone again. But 
So what do you see for the rest of 2021? Because 2020 was quite the, uh, how do I say this yeah. nicely? Different yeah. year. <laughs> yeah, tw- 2020. Well, and, and I think we were talking about this uh, last year when I was on your show. Um, 2020, it, look, you know, first off, COVID's not a hoax. And, um, you know, I've, I've said stuff like this on Facebook and people said, I'm unfriending you. I'm throwing your books in the garbage. And my response to that is stupidity is a pre-existing condition. Ignorance is a voluntary state. And either one is bad enough. But when you possess both of those, that's just sad. Um, if you look at human history, there have been plagues after plagues after plagues after plagues. And... Um, this is our plague. This is our pandemic. The last one of significance was the HIV crisis. Okay, but you know because HIV is is um, you know it spreads through uh, body fluid contact. It's it's not as as contagious as something which is an airborne disease. And then if you want to have a template for what we're going through, you look at the. Uh, the the Spanish flu pandemic of in 1917 1918, and you know before that there was the plague of 1665, and I mean you could go all the way back to to ancient times. Um, I believe that based on the messages that I've been getting in readings, that there is a reverse course now on this pandemic, and the reverse course means that it's it we're going to win. But what I've been getting is continue to wear your armor. Continue to wear your armor. That's the actual message. And I'm interpreting the armor as wear your mask. Um, every every message I've gotten that's been transmitted to me from the other side about COVID, they all say, get the, get the vax, get the vax. And look, I'm not saying this because I'm trying to persuade anybody. I'm telling you what I have been getting. And... Um, it's been right on the money. And let me tell you why, Jim. In late 2019, I, I was doing readings for people, and spirits kept showing me images of the person that I was doing the reading for wearing a surgical mask. And everybody was like, well, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm, I don't have anything to do with that. And they kept mentioning March 2020, March 2020, March 2020. Well, in March 2020, I started getting emails and calls from people saying, Mark, now I figured it out. We're all wearing masks now, surgical masks, in March 2020. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. And then it was making sense. Then around July of 2020, they started telling me about reverse course April 2021, reverse course April 2021. And I'm like, well, what could that mean? I remember I posted this on Facebook. And then right after that, there was a news announcement that vaccines would be available. It's like, okay, so that's the reverse course. And now they're they're saying that, there is a reverse course, but you have to keep wearing your your armor, your masks. And what I'm getting is that the pandemic, and that's assuming though, and I'm hoping the other side's right, is going to start dropping off. But I'm getting the feeling there could be a fourth wave. And that's because all the people who are resistant on the vaccine. And look, I know there's a lot of people and you have your reasons why you're not going to get vaccinated. And yes, I know a couple people have, have died from the vaccines, but they're like, you know, eight or nine out of, you know, a couple million. And certainly, you know, even one one is unacceptable. But um, I believe that that's the best way to go. Now, with the death of George Floyd, with the racial tension, think of our, our country as a body. 
our body's very sick, but you don't know the body's sick until you start seeing the symptoms. And those symptoms are the systemic racism. There's this polarization. There's all of these um, conspiracy theories that are all anti-vax, anti-this, anti-that, and stirring this dissension. And perhaps all these things need to happen. Perhaps all of these things need to come to the surface so that cooler heads can prevail and decide how to deal with this. And so, so that is, is what I've been getting about all of this. I don't, you know, it's, it's so funny because I, I, I've um, been on many shows and there's all these psychics going, oh, the great awakening is coming and the time of peace. And, you know, it's like, look, we don't live in the Republic of Kumbaya. And I don't see that we're going to be dancing around in fields of daisies, flinging granola around, you know, um, you know, riding on our unicorns. Planet Earth has never been utopia. When has it been utopia? You know, people say, oh, the good old days, the 1950s. Okay, you mean when there was segregation and Cold War um, and then the, certainly it was in the 60s with all the strife. Well, what about the Roman Empire? That wasn't so great, okay, if you were a slave or being thrown into the arena or brutal oppression. So when exactly was planet Earth utopia? It never has been. We're a work in progress. And right now we have the intelligence, the telecommunications, and the the medical and, and biological technology to actually improve things. And COVID showed us that we could. I mean, within a year, vaccines are created. People, oh, they're injecting a chip in you. Well, you know what? They're tracking you anyway if you carry a cell phone. So don't give me this, oh, they're going to inject the chip in me. You know, I, I just, I, I, you know, I have a hard time believing that. i got to keep an open mind. But, but I think that all these things, Jim, are going on. This is a turbulence. This is a discord, a disharmony. And it's all happening because it has to. I, I I totally agree. There's a lot going on in the world right now. So speaking of what, speaking of which, I got one more. We're going to bring this back to full circle here. Uh, this conflict between Israel and Palestine. I mean, this has been going on for, well, ever, ever. <laughs> yeah. It, or is is I mean, is that going to ever work itself out, or is this just going to be? Or we? I mean, I guess let's let's touch the bricks, right? Because I don't think it's ever going to work itself out completely. But are we on kind of a back to? I don't want to say even, but. Is it, you know, because I, I mean, it was quite the stir there for a little bit. I don't, at this point in time, I don't see how it possibly could work itself out. And, you know, I always think of something that Golda Meir said. She was the prime minister of Israel uh, during the 73 Yom, Yom Kippur War. And she said that there'll be peace when our enemies realize that they love their children more than they hate us. And I don't see that happening. And I've, I've heard a, uh, forget her name, but she's a Palestinian professor, and she said, I'm really sick and tired of people saying, well, where's the Palestinian Gandhi? And it's like, well, where is the Palestinian Gandhi, okay? Where, where is, you know, the nonviolent, non-cooperation non-cooper- tactics of Gandhi and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. being employed? When you start firing thousands of missiles from the Gaza Strip onto Israel, you think Israel is going to respond? You know, and, and look, I don't like seeing anybody killed. I don't like seeing any of this violence, but violence begets violence. And as Gandhi said, an eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind. 
And it, it's all going to come down to um, if if these people in in uh, Gaza, in Israel, in in the Palestinian territories can come to some type of agreement where they can live in harmony. And I don't mean like, you know, riding around a unicorn singing kumbaya. Is it a two-state solution? Is it a one country where there's equal representation? I don't see that happening. I don't see the, the Israelis um, creating that type of, of, of country. Um, but if is there going to be a two-state solution? This is such a difficult problem. And a big part of it is it's like, you know, this was part of the British Empire at one time. And when they pulled out, and they said, okay, these areas will be for the Jews. These areas will be for the Muslims. And uh, it, it, it was not done with any type of, of long-term thought. Um, because when they talk about a two-state solution, the left bank territories are separate from the Gaza Strip. And so what, there'll be a corridor running through them? That didn't work very well when the British created East Pakistan and West Pakistan. It ended up in, in, a, in a major war. You know, we split countries and, and have a corridor and all that. So, so unless, unless all these parties can, can agree that we have to figure out a peaceful way to do this, then it's going to go on and on and on. I don't see any end to the violence there. Okay, so and that's sad. It is sad, and I, I hope we could find some. Like I said, I, I don't think we're ever going to solve solve the problem, but there's got to be somewhere in the middle that we can kind of mate and not kill everybody. Okay, so the easiest question I'm going to ask you tonight, Mark. You ready for this one? Um, I'm ready. Because I've been asking you some, we've been kind of spanning and kind of going all over the place. But tell me about the when did you start doing this radio show? Um, the Psychic and the Doc. Um, my co-host is Dr. Pat Basili, and she is the founder of the Transformation Network, and she's the host of the award-winning The Dr. Pat Show, which you know, which is uh, going on every day. And I've been on her show a number of times over over the years, and usually, you know, sometimes on the phone like this, and other times when I was on tour of Seattle. And people would call in and I'd do a mini reading and then she would say, well, can I add something? I go, absolutely. And she, you know, she's a real street smart, um, spiritual behaviorist. I mean, you know, she went to Columbia. I mean, Dr. Pat, world renowned psychologist. And so we started talking during the early phases of COVID, like, wouldn't it be good to do a show based on that where I can do readings? And then she adds her inspirational insights. And so it's it's really taken off. It's become very popular. It's every Thursday night, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, people want to find out about uh, how to tune in. Please visit my website, which is afterlifefrequency.com, www.afterlifefrequency.com. And uh, sign up for my newsletter, and you'll, you'll get updates on the show. And then we have guests on as well, Jim, you know, just like you do. Um, we've had some very interesting people on. And uh, this has been a, a very positive, very positive, very uplifting experience. I love working with Dr. Pat. Transformation uh, Network is great. And Okay, so where can people find you? Because I've got one more good question here, so I want to get sure, these, yeah. these out. Uh, yeah, find me if you want to uh, schedule a reading. 
um, find out about uh, my upcoming book, The Afterlife Frequency, go to my website, Afterlife Frequency, just like the book, afterlifefrequency.com. Okay, so I don't know. I'm not sure I have this question in the right order, but we're going to ask it this way, and then if it's not, you can flip it around on me. How's that sound? Okay. How does one become so knowledgeable in mythology and history become a lawyer? You know, um, this has always been part of me. From the time I was a little kid, um, I, you know, you know, when I first started reading, I was about, about three and a half, four. You know, my parents were like, he's reading, you know, and, and, uh, and so, so, yeah, I started off with Dr. Seuss and then I found a history book and then I found a mythology book and then I found a geography book and it just kept going on and on and on. And so that's why, that's why I've been nicknamed by, by the media, the psychic explorer, because when I started getting uh, in high school and I could go on trips abroad, I started visiting all these sites like Stonehenge and Loch Ness and in Central America and, and then, uh, you know, down in Peru and Southeast Asia and, and, and then, of course, sites in the United States and Native American holy grounds. And, and uh, being a medium, I was always drawn to the spiritual. So I've been studying religion, philosophy, spiritualism, and, uh, and as an attorney, um, I'd had to work with physics, and that's what got me interested in quantum physics. Plus, my dad was in NASA. Uh, he was, uh, you know, an aerospace engineer. And so from day one, um, I've just been fascinated with with uh, the space sciences and physics and all of it. So uh, I, I guess I'm just interested in a lot of things. Well, there's being interested in a lot of things, but there, there's you have a whole different level of knowledge about things. I mean, I'm interested in a lot of things, but I don't know if I could write all that stuff off like you did tonight. Well, thanks, Jim. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> it, yeah, you know, it's just, it's so ingrained in me, you know, and um, I, I was like, well, you know, being psychic, and then we start reading about the Greeks, okay, when you look at the, the Iliad, okay, that was kind of the Greek Bible, the Trojan War, and um, the, it's so fascinating because the, the way the Trojan War, according to mythology is Prince Paris. He was the crown prince of Troy. Um, the Greek goddesses asked him to judge a beauty contest among them. All right, that's a recipe for disaster there, okay? Um, and the queen of the gods, Hera, um, offered him wealth if he chose her. Um, Athena, the goddess of, of wisdom and war, uh, said you would always be victorious in battle. And then Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, said... I will give you true love. Well, of course, he picks her, and then he meets Helen, who's the wife of the king of Sparta, Agamemnon, and then he has an adulterous affair. They run off, and, and you know, so that starts the uh, Trojan War because the Greeks, you know, they, they, they want to punish Troy. Uh, archaeologists feel that it was probably Troy was a powerful city that controlled trade routes, and basically the Greeks wanted to nix it, and, you know, it all comes back to money. But mythology is kind of more fun. Well, in Troy, Prince Paris's sister, Cassandra, she was the lover of the god Apollo, and he gave her the gift of prophecy. But then she rejected him. Now, these people are really stupid. First off, you agree to judge one goddess as prettier than the others, and, like, there's not going to be any repercussions <laughs> there. Secondly, you're, you're, you know, you're a woman who's involved with a god, the god of prophecy, and you say, nah, I don't want you. So he spits in her mouth, 
and curses her. Apollo curses her that her predictions will always be accurate, but nobody would believe her. So Paris shows up with Helen, and everyone's like, oh, that's nice. You've got a new bride, even though, you know, you're going to get Greece to go to war. And Cassandra's like, her name is death. She will bring ruin and destruction. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 whatever, Cassandra. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, um, so I, you know, reading these stories, I always found them so fascinating. And then when I got into college, I started taking upper-level philosophical um, um, discourses on Greek mythology, and if you look at a lot of the Greek myths, they're intensely philosophical and psychological. Each one of them, it's more than just the story of significance. And certainly, you know, people like Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and, and all these psychologists and, and uh, philosophers, you know, you look at the Oedipus complex, the Electra complex, and all these other terms, they all are rooted very deeply in Greek mythology. Like, you know, how many times have you heard the word, oh, he's, he or she is narcissistic? You know, well, Narcissus was this beautiful boy that fell in love with his own reflection in the water and wouldn't leave it and tried to kiss it and make love to it, but it would, you know, the water would do that until he starved himself to death well what's the what's the moral of the story there when the only thing that you love is yourself you're going to end up destroying yourself and so when you start analyzing the greek myths it was more than just a bunch of people hanging out on top of a mountain drinking and partying they they had very deep metaphorical significance and also or a way of helping people understand their own psychological difficulties and pains. Yeah, that's just... Oh, Mark. We've been kind of all over the place tonight, and I'm glad this show's almost over, because my head's about ready to explode. I know, this is like, you know, <laughs> you know on, on Jeopardy, this is like potpourri for 400, Jim, you know? <laughs> so I've, I've got one more totally out there question for you. Yeah, you ask away. Um... Are psychic abilities yeah. trans, uh, transmittable across the cosmos, or do you get contacted from other solar systems or universes? Or Well, um, my book, The Afterlife Frequency, is going to explain how quantum entanglement um, is, is a, a definite part of, of spirit communication. And what I termed in my last book, Evidence of Eternity, but I'm taking it even further in after, The Afterlife Frequency, <laughs> is interdimensional communication. And one of the points of the new book is that uh, contact with a spirit through a medium or a visitation when they come to you in a dream or where you catch a glimpse of them, a near-death experience, a shared death experience, a deathbed vision, and even out-of-body experiences are all based on the same physics. They're all forms of interdimensional communication. Now, that being said... Um, the type of mediumship I like to focus on is evidential. So if I do a reading for somebody, um, what I am interested in is being able to communicate with the spirits connected with that person and so that I can bring forth verifiable facts that they can, first off, identify who this is, and then secondly, through through that, then the spirit will begin transmitting to me messages which have relevance to the person in their life now, their health status, like you know, maybe where they're going in their life. 
Um, but the objective is to be able to verify the authenticity of the contact. So if I tell you that kazoo from the planet Remulac is sending me a little warm and fuzzies, well, it's all very nice, but it's not evidential. So to me, it doesn't have any real value unless it can be backed up by something which can be validated. Yeah, and, and I, I see that being a big thing for you because of your, uh, well, being a lawyer, right? Because that's how these things work or work themselves out. Well, you know, you, yeah, I mean, I see a lot of like really ridiculous mediumship and I'm not going to mention any names, although I could. And um, where, where people are passing off the charlatanism um, and uh, it's clearly cold reading or they've researched somebody before they go to them for a reading or they're like, oh, these spirits talk to me and they say like everybody should be loving and happy. It's like, yeah, no, duh. Um, you know, give me give me something. Give me something of some type of factual evidential value other than like attracts like and we all need to be nice and kumbaya. And and you know, I know I'm I'm being a little little um, sarcastic here, but the problem is that the history of mediumship has been loaded with fraud. And for those of us who are legitimate mediums, you know, we have that to to overcome and we have to hold the standard the bar high. Making people sit in the dark while you make goofy voices and things and say that that's somehow a form of mediumship isn't. Yeah, I I felt I had a woman talking to me and I felt horrible. I can't even tell you how horrible I felt because she went and got a reading and it was a cold reading. And when she was telling me about it and I kind of went and, you know, I hate to say it, but I can do a cold reading, right? Because I've learned enough about it. And, you know, and she's like, no, no, you're not. And I said, no, I know I'm not, but I can play the part of a psychic really quick. Or, you know, the illusion of one that, you know, quote unquote. And she's like, oh, and you could just see. She turned like four shades of pale. And I felt bad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and um, it's too bad we didn't get into this uh, question <laughs> earlier um, because I got a whole lot of stories um, on that. But, um, you know, if you're going to go to a medium, check out his or her reputation. If they have a website like mine, afterlifefrequency.com, go to it, read it, and please read everything on on the page uh, for to schedule a reading before you do, okay? Because you know all the, all the information there is going to explain how how to approach a reading and what to expect from it. Because you know, I get people all the time like, well, I really don't want to talk to my deceased loved ones. I want to about my love life and a career. Well, I'm not a fortune teller, okay? I'm a medium. If spirits bring up things about your future or your life, then they're going to. But don't go into it with that set agenda. And these type of things are, are explained on on uh, you know on my site. And and my colleagues who are legitimate, um, they're explained on theirs as well. We'll have to have you back on. We talked about doing some live leaving, so we've got about 10 seconds left, Mark. So that's not good news for either of us. Well, all I can say is if people want to get hold of me, afterlifefrequency.com. Jim, thank you so much. And I'm Mark Anthony, and you're listening to The Mallard Report. Thanks, Mark. Have a good night. Thank blessed. you for listening to this episode of The Mallard Report. Stay tuned for details on saving money at the Duck Pond Shop. I hope you enjoyed this report. Please subscribe so that you can join us again. And if you appreciate the show, leave us some stars or a review. 
For more notes from this show or other great shows, check out Mallard.com. A reminder, the views and opinions of this show are those of the host and guests and do not represent any sponsors, affiliates, or any other partners of the Mallard Report. Now for your money-saving tip. Promo code Mallard at checkout of DuckPondShop.com where you can get your t-shirt, coffee mug, and other great products. That's promo code Mallard at checkout, DuckPondShop.com. Until next week, stay safe and keep whacking. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs)